can't never stop working hard. Each day I feel I have to improve. Hard work, determination. I've got to keep pushing myself. Hello and welcome to Hiya, the only podcast that sees that monk with the Burger King bag behind his back and wonders if he's thinking, "Not the rascal Lawai Polly, he steal my Cora again." <laughs> Episode twenty-three, recorded November fourth, twenty twelve, starts now. Oh boy, I'm glad it started some point. You're having trouble getting through that. I saw you had to close it like you were singing the AIDS program or something, but that was a good job, man. That was nice. Singing the AIDS program? What the hell are you talking you about? You remember how we used to do in the 80s, man, with Michael Jackson and about 50 other guys? You sit there, we are the world. Oh, I got you. Yeah, yeah. I got you now. Ah. <laughs> <sighs> So, how you doing, Craig? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. How about yourself? Did you Great. recover from your Wing Chun? Yeah, yeah. My Wing Chun over from the last one? Yeah, bingo, bango. <laughs> yeah, I've had to lay off the drinking for a few days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you should. As well I should. Yep. <clears throat> Wouldn't hurt me to lose a few pounds. Right. You know, I was looking at those pictures we posted up on the website now, and I'm like, uh, ruh-roh. <laughs> <laughs> it ain't of your tummy. I, I don't ever see myself in the mirror when I'm sitting down. <laughs> it's like, oh, check him out. Nah. Christmas time is coming. Grow that beard out. It's nice and white. There you I go. I got me a part-time job. Yes, you do. <laughs> yes, you do. And you know the collections you take where they go, right, of course? No, where do they go, Craig? In my pocket. Oh. Okay. All right. All right, Grinchy Poo. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we won't beat this to death because we got a great interview coming up today with Matthew Polly, author of uh, American Shaolin and almost said American Ninja, but that was Michael Dudikoff. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. American Shaolin and Tap Out, both fantastic books. I crammed them both this week. We'll You're get a, an amazing yeah. reader, by the way. I, yeah. I can't do that. Well, you know, I was enjoying the hell out of them, so it wasn't it wasn't a chore at all. Page turners. Yes, indeed. And uh, so we're going to talk to him in just a second, and then we'll come back after a trip through the Champagne Lounge and uh, get a few news items out to you before we sign off this week. So we hope you had a happy Halloween. Here comes the rest of the holiday season. Just keep your heads down and move forward. It'll all be over soon. That's right. <laughs> Don't worry. We'll give you nothing but treats. Yeah, we got nothing but treats left for you for the rest of the year. So, on that note, it's off to the Champagne Lounge to, uh, you know, drink a Day Glow baby bottle full of baby sham. There ye have it. Oh, you just wait. We've got Matt Polly, Matthew Polly, the author of American Shaolin and Tap Out and uh, writer for the New York Times. I assume that's still current, Matt. 
Yeah, that's absolutely true. Okay, awesome. And uh, welcome to hi Ya. Say hi Ya, everybody. Hey, thanks for having me on. No problem. So um, normally when we, when we get somebody on here, the first thing we go for is what got them into martial arts. You kind of have, you know, several chapters of a book <laughs> that that deal with that already. But can you just condense it down for the people who may not have read the books, uh, the book American Shaolin so far? Sure, absolutely. I, it was basically I was 13, um, and this is dating myself, but my the town got its first VCR, a friend of mine. <laughs> uh, and so you got a sense of how old I am. But anyway, uh, 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 the older brother of the kid who uh, had the VCR brought in a tape of Enter the Dragon uh, with with Bruce Lee, and it just absolutely blew my mind. And then I started watching Kung Fu, Old Taste of Kung Fu with David Carradine. Uh, And because I was sort of the uh, skinny, prototypical, skinny, scrawny, nerdy kid who got sand kicked in the The, face. The picture uh, of you, the profile picture of you in that book from the side is priceless, I got to tell you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I was. I, I literally was like a paper, yeah, like, um, a- <laughs> like thin from that side. So, um, being a ninety-eight pound weakling, you know, you see Bruce Lee, who's also a skinny guy, um, clearly being able to kick and dominate. And so, for me, it was it was this idea that you could, it was humanly possible to be a kind of superhero um, through the martial arts. And when you're twelve, thirteen years old. Um, that's pretty attractive. Definitely. So that's what, that's what returned me on to the idea of martial arts was really kind of an idea of self-defense. Excellent. So, uh, and you know, that's, uh, the, the, that common thread just weaves its way through so many of our guests, uh, either the Bruce Lee movie or the black belt theater or something just, you know, clicked in them and they said, Oh man, I, I could do that. You know, <laughs> gotta do it. Yeah. I need to do that. So I can stop getting my ass kicked every day. Exactly. Um, uh, you also mentioned in the book that uh, one of your inspirations was Mark Salzman uh, and his uh, Iron and Silk uh, uh, book and movie, actually, that he put out, uh, at least as far as going to China anyway. Uh, what else uh, influenced that? And, uh, you know, how did you how did you find out about Mark Salzman uh, at that point? Well, yeah, well, it was actually um, there wasn't much martial arts at the time in Kansas where I grew up. Uh, so I did a little, but it really started to pick up when I got to college because, you know, there was Aikido and Taekwondo clubs. Um, but I got interested in China and Chinese religion and also Kung Fu because of uh, Bruce Lee. And I got this idea that I wanted to go to China to study the real Kung Fu. And kind of randomly, I ran along uh, Mark Salzman's book, Iron and Silk. Um, and this was back in sort of 1992, not many years after the Tiananmen Square massacre. So the idea of going to China at that time was kind of scary. Um, and so in reading his book, uh, he did the same thing. He'd left after he graduated from college. He'd gone to China and started studying Kung Fu. And so that was the first sense I had that this was something that was actually possible. Um, and so he was a tremendous influence on me. Now, as as long as we've brought him up, this is sort of skipping ahead, but um, I, I saw Mark Salzman back in, I think it was 93, maybe. Uh, you know, it was about a year after his movie came out, and he was uh, doing a book tour for The Laughing Sutra. And uh-huh. uh, he uh, came out and did a talk, and then he did a little demonstration. But, you know, I was expecting to see some Shaolin. And oh. all he did was Taiji. And when we asked him about that, he said, you know, I thought I was building my body up this whole time. And, 
getting stronger, but I've had so many health problems from trying to do this crazy stuff that I've, I only do Tai Chi now. (laughs) And again, this is jumping way ahead, but you know, did, do you think that had anything to do with, uh, with you letting off on it once you got back or, you know, what, what reasons were involved in that? Um, yeah, I mean, the thing is it's, it's called kind of hard, hard Kung Fu for a reason. It is kind of hard on your body and it does, um, as people get older in China, there's a tradition of when you're young, starting with the hard stuff, the kind of Shaolin hard Kung Fu. And as you get older, you start to shift towards the Tai Chi and the more internal training. Um, usually, I mean, that's pretty, he was in his twenties then. So that's that's a little early. (laughs) I'd agree. (laughs) Uh, That's a little early to have your body breaking down. But, uh, uh, for me, I, I ended up training less when I got from back from China simply because, um, the opportunities weren't there. And it was a little, uh, disappointing to go from, you know, the center of the Kung Fu world back to, you know, strip malls, (laughs) which is where most of the, most of the martial arts takes place in America. Um, but, you know, we can get into that more. It's certainly uh, another factor is, for me, uh, martial arts, while a passion of mine, um, a lot of it had to do with having that sense of security, um, physical confidence. And once I achieved it, uh, I felt less passionate about the martial arts than I did before. Like, it it was it was a means to an end rather than the end in and of itself in some way. Right. Okay, well, let's back up a little bit then, and let's go through some of the stuff that happened to you in the book. Um, sure. Uh, you got over there, and there's, I'm not going to try to drag all the stories in the book out of you. The listeners can go buy the darn thing and read it. Yeah, and they I, should. I highly recommend it. Yeah. <laughs> I actually crammed both of your books this week, and uh, luckily for me, they're not super <laughs> dense reads, but they're super entertaining. I had a great time. I'm, uh, I'm on the edge of my seat for your next one. I just don't have any idea what you would do. Uh, right. <laughs> maybe a George Plimpton style foray into pro football or something would. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But uh, going back to the beginning there, you know, you got over there, you made it to Shaolin and there were plenty of misadventures there. But, uh, you know, this is a martial arts podcast, so I'm sure people want a little bit of nitty gritty out of this. Did uh, you started out in the forums and because of your height and 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 being more concerned with learning how to fight, you, you fairly rapidly moved out of that and into the Sanda portion. Um, right. but while you were doing the forms, um, I, I noticed you mentioned, uh, Xiao Hong Chuan by name and, uh, and also you mentioned in the book that most of the performance, they only did one traditional form at most of the performances and the rest were the Wushu versions or, or right. the Shaolin tarted up Wushu versions for performance. <laughs> and, uh, what, what was the forms curricula you were training past Xiao Hong Chuan? Did, could you, uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, oh, yeah. Um, I, I did about uh, three months straight, which is, you know, at Shaolin, that's pretty intensive because we were doing seven hours of training a day. So um, you, you do small red boxing, then big red boxing, um, Lohan, Chen, um, and another, I did a uh, praying mantis for the animal. Oh, nice. Uh, and, and then I did the weapons. You start off with the staff, and then I did the broadsword. Uh, and then for um, the soft weapon or the flexible one, I did the nine-section whip. Um, so I felt like that gave me a fairly good broad section of of the various <clears throat> excuse me of the various forms. Uh, you know, the thing about Shaolin, you realize, is a hundred would be a modest number for how many forms they have. Yeah. And so 
at a certain point, the monks each start to specialize in the certain types of weapons. Um, they've got 18 basic ones, and there are kind of 18 different types of forms, and there's maybe five to seven different types of animal styles. Um, but that was that was the thing. Small red boxing, big red boxing, Lohan, uh, staff, sword, and ninth section whip. Okay, so they were mostly teaching you traditional forms, not setting you up to, to demonstrate with the wushu stuff. Yeah, exactly. The uh, uh, Everyone starts with traditional forms, and then some people stay with that their whole time. Um, and then some some have a choice. They After that, they tend to either become the demonstrative wushu gymnastic stuff or um, kickboxing. Those are the three um, curriculum that are taught at Shaolin. Uh, because I was so tall, doing that kind of gymnastic stuff just wasn't very possible. Right. So I did... I did. I did learn one form, the detong form, nice. which involves a lot of a lot of leaping into the air and crashing down and jumping and spinning and kicking yourself off the ground. And you know, by the end, I could do like one backflip if you know someone was watching. Right. Me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but it's really uh, I, I was I'm six foot three, and those kind of gymnastic things are really for guys who are five six, five seven, five eight. Um, and so, but because I was so tall and so thin, I had a real advantage, uh, in kickboxing, particularly Sanda, which uses lengthy kicks to keep opponents at bay and is more of a kind of point style, um, it, that a full contact style. So, uh, that seemed to be where I should go. Not to mention that, uh, what I discovered really is the guys who liked the fight, who liked street fighting, they were all Sanda guys. Right. Uh, and the gymnast guys, the wushu guys were really, they were the pretty boys. (laughs) (laughs) Well, who got the most girls uh, though? That's what I want to (laughs) know. Yeah. You know, it always splits, right? The, the girls, you know, they're attracted to the bad boy fighters, but the pretty boys look good on their arms. Nice. Well, before, before we move into the Sanda, uh, I want one more thing, like, you know, Craig teaches Northern Shaolin, like, a uh, 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 Gu Yu Chong's branch, and I trained it for a long time. And I, I, I'm just, uh, I, I think it, you've kind of already answered my question that I had. But we had just, uh, you said that the workouts uh, there were fairly consistent. You know, you would run, you would do the same drills every day. And you know, from from my perspective, and this other side of, of Shaolin, it was it was hours of just crazy drills, and it seemed like there was a new one every week. You know, some new contortion, walk down the field doing this idiotic thing. Uh, idiotic. <laughs> well, I I felt like I looked like an idiot the first few times I did it anyway. <laughs> well, yeah, that you did. But it, it was constantly raising the bar there. But we, I actually learned forms very slowly. So hearing how much you were concentrating on the forms, I think I know where the variety came from. But do I have that right? Like uh, it was a very fairly simplified warm up type workout, and you mostly focused on forms for for the you know coordination, training, and drills and stuff. Yeah, the uh, the first three months, uh, basically the first, say, 30 minutes of a class. Uh, uh, one thing I think is different for the um, Shaolin guys from some of the way they train in the States is how much time was spent on stretching drills and kick stretching drills. I mean, that might take up uh, 20 minutes of a two-hour class. Um, you really were expected to be able to put the top of your toe to your head and pull out a full split. 
Um, and if you weren't able to do that, you were basically, you were considered not to under have the basic sort of, uh, athletic ability to do the forms properly. And then after you did that, there were, um, they loved the number 18. So there were 18 basic movements that we repeated over and over again. And these were, these were like movements that you would see segments of that would show up in all the different forms, a kind of of jump, turn, twist, punch would show up in Lohan as well as Xiao Hong. Um, and so those were basically, it was like learning the alphabet. Right, the, the uh, hinge before. points, sir. Yeah. I... Exactly. And so these were sort of, uh, it was learning the 18 letters of the alphabet or shall forms. And then the last hour of the class, you would focus on learning, um, the, the, like Da Hong Tren has say 55 movements. And so you would spend an hour learning 10 of those movements. <clears throat> and so it would take you a week to go through, um, a full form, and then you would spend another a week or two trying to perfect it. So um, that's that's basically how the the forms classes broke down. Okay, cool. Always curious about that stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's one of the interesting things. I, I they're very much focused on repetition. I think um, because I know a lot of the monks who were training there and came over here, and one of the things they told me is they found that they needed to uh, introduce different stuff for the American audience because we were a little less, <clears throat> we wanted new stuff. Yeah, a little more impatient. <laughs> <laughs> we are, yeah, without question, you know, and you can, a uh, 13 or 14-year-old Chinese kid is not surprised if he has to do the same thing for a year. Um, you lose your your membership pretty quickly in America if you tried to do that to 13 or 14-year-old America. Yeah, exactly. Um. Cool. Well, you, you transitioned over the, to the Sanda from there. Uh, go ahead and tell everybody what that was like, what was different, what was similar, and, and how that turned out for you. Um, well, Sanda is, uh, for, you know, for your audience who doesn't know, it's, it's kickboxing on a platform. It's Chinese-style kickboxing, which just means a slightly different set of rules than, say, Muay Thai or Thai kickboxing, in the sense that there's no um, elbows or knees, uh, and there's no ground fighting, like all kickboxing, but you are allowed to throw opponent to the ground. So there's sweeps and throws, unlike in Muay Thai. Um, and a lot of sort of their basic kick is a, a, a front side kick, as opposed to Muay Thai's roundhouse kick. Um, and so the idea is to kind of stay at, um, just outside a distance to jump in, land that side kick, connect with some punches, and then try to pick up or sweep your opponent. Um, it's best two out of three rounds in the competition, two minute rounds. Um, you're on a platform so you can knock a guy off the platform. Um, and judging is there's, uh, five judges and they each score each round for one person or the uh, or the other. <clears throat> and that's kind of the basic framework for, um, Chinese kickboxing. And it is probably, with the exception of Muay Thai, is probably the most uh, competitive style of kickboxing because their rules are the loosest. I mean, hey, Matthew, let me ask you this. This is really interesting to me. I've never done Sanda. You know, I know about it only kind of from the cursory edge. Um, but it almost sounds to me when I hear people explain the rules and how it goes down, um, like using kind of the four methods of, of traditional Chinese martial arts of Ti da na shui of uh, ti kick, you know, uh, da hit, na grapple or whatever, and shui throw, um, but almost as a progressive method in sport of combat. Sounds, does that, is that somewhat accurate? I, I'm trying to learn more about this and understand it. 
Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's an excellent way of putting it. I mean, um, that's exa- almost exactly the way um, a, a fight unfolds. It's you stand a distance, you try to land your kick first. As you get closer, then you move to the punch. Then you grab somebody and you try to throw them. Right. So, so that theory is pretty much exactly. If you watch a Sandak competition, there'll be moments where they stand toe to toe and exchange punches, but they tend to come. They go in and out. It's much more like it's watching an accordion. <laughs> kick, right? It's kick, punch, grab, throw. And then if you don't get the throw, you back up, punch, kick, and you're out. Right, right. Um, and, and so they tend to go in and out as opposed to, say, boxing. Uh, Muay Thai, really, and if you watch it in Thailand, they'll stand toe-to-toe and just bang on each other. Um, the Chinese guys don't like to stand toe-to-toe and bang, and so they, they kind of jump in and out and... I think they've also been influenced by watching Bruce Lee movies because <laughs> that, that kind of side that uh, they don't square up like American boxers. They have a kind of turn to the side and they use that front side, the leg and that front punch a lot more. Um, and so that tends to be, you, you know, when some guy turns like that, like Kung Lee is a good example in MMA of a guy who's used Sanda yeah. well. Um, he, he turns slightly and he uses that front kick is almost like a jab. Um, and, and then when he gets closer, it's punch, punch, grab, throw. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're very good at that. And, uh, it'll be interesting to see as MMA has gotten big and we'll talk about that later. Um, the throws are very effective because that's what they practice all the time. Yeah. And you can, you can watch, uh, Kung Lee and some of his MMA stuff actually use them to pretty good effect in that mail. Yeah. He, yeah, no, he's 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 very good at it. He's got an excellent wrestling background as well, which most um, Chinese guys don't have. Right. Uh, and so it's very hard to throw him. And because you can't get him down, he can just throw those kicks over and over again. Um, and that's one of the things that's really um, nice about uh, Chinese kickboxing as opposed to all these Muay Thai guys is they have five or six really beautiful kicks as part of their repertoire. And so you see spinning kicks and spinning back kicks and um, jumping kicks um, that are, you know, it turns the fight into a video game, which makes it right. <laughs> Awesome. So, um, you know, you were a fairly successful competitor that during your time there, uh, you took a silver medal while you were there, fought the national champion. Um, uh, so uh, tell folks a little bit what, about what that was like to, to be in sort of a high profile event in China at that time and, and, and get to compete with those guys and all of that. Yeah, it was, it was trippy because all the, um, the, the national champion had been training for nine years straight and I had about nine right. months. So, so it was, uh, uh, and it was funny cause I met him beforehand and he'd heard there was this, this white guy who was, um, who was pretty good at Sanda, so he kind of checked me out and wanted to see what I was like. They're very competitive. Um, and it was a tournament. It was, a, it was an invitational tournament. So the idea was the Chinese would only put one person in each weight class, um, and thus they would allow the foreigners who came to win silver and silver. <laughs> <laughs> um, that was their idea of being the, the good They host. had to let you save uh, some face. Yeah. Because you'll yeah, need exactly. it later. You know, they, they wanted you to go home with something, but they weren't going to let it. Right. Um, <laughs> so, it, you know, it was very competitive. Um, and I was, uh, it was interesting. I fought this Korean guy to get to the finals. And, and uh, I got to the finals and we got on the platform 
the the national champion, Chinese national champion, and I. And the crowd, they don't know I speak Chinese, and they start chanting, <laughs> so they're, 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 they're chanting, you know, kill yeah. the foreigners, beat him to death. Um, and I, you know, was a little surprised and I looked over at my coaches and they kind of shrugged like, what are you going to do? You're what do you expect? Yeah. So, <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so, it, you know, it was a good match and uh, I, you know, I was pretty good. The reason why I was able to do better than I think my training would indicate was because I was six foot three, but 155 pounds. Oh. And, and so they basically, as you saw in the photo, I was just a skin and bone. So uh, they'd never, they'd never had to fight anybody uh, with that kind of dimension. Right. Um, and so it threw the national champion off for a while. He couldn't quite figure out how to get inside my range. And then he did, and he definitely won. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> I gave him a good match, uh, much better than should be expected. Uh, and he, he turned out, one of the things I found the the guys who were the champion kickboxers were some of the nicest guys I met because they they had mastered this art and they didn't have anything to prove. So he really was a wonderful guy, and it was a it was a real honor to get to get on the platform and test my skills against him. Yeah, that's, <laughs> what an awesome adventure you had over there. <clears throat> <laughs> no way, it was crazy. Uh, you know, it was a bunch. Yeah, I'm forty, about to be forty four myself, so I, I think we're pretty close to the same age. And oh yeah. You know, yeah. I had uh, just in my 20s, I just fantasized about I'm going to get on a plane and, go, you know, it never worked out. My Chinese was horrible. I did you know, <laughs> just was, he says, was. It still is. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> but. The hard language. It is. It's a, it, yeah. um, but, you know, the fact that you actually got out there and did it is uh, it was an inspiration to us all. Thank you. Thank you, brother. So, um, you know, you, you finished out your time there again. I'm not just going to go through and make you tell every damn story in the book. They, uh, hi, y'all people get out there and buy these. If you haven't read them, they're awesome. Um, definitely. But I was wondering, uh, when you got back, uh, you know, we touched on this a minute ago. Um, so, you know, you kind of had problems staying motivated. Did you, did you ever try to, and you also had other reasons for moving on, but did you ever look up any of the expat monks here and then check them out, uh, you know, train with them at all or anything? I did. Uh, I, I met several of them. Um, and, uh, you know, I went to their studios. It just felt a little awkward, I think. Uh, but I, and you know, I should say this, it sounds like an excuse, but I did start to have problems with injuries mm. and most, mostly kind of turned ankles and stuff. So I'd start training and turn an ankle and then be out for six weeks. Um, and I did, I, I guess I kind of lost my fervor a little bit, not being in that environment. Um, and I do regret that because I wish I'd, you know, stuck through the whole way. Um, certainly when I picked up to do my next book, I would have preferred if I'd been in a little better shape. So, uh, but I do think, uh, it's, one of the things I found is that and I do admire American martial artists because it's, it's not really as much a part of the mainstream of the culture as it is in China. Yeah. Uh, and so it, it just was much easier in China to train because that's all you did. That's when at Shaolin, that was data, That was your whole life. And here you got to go find a place and you got to take time off from work and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so I, 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 there was a period where I drifted away from it. Yeah. Yeah. It's even, and, it's so hard to get your family to understand. Like I've been doing yeah. martial arts for 20 plus years 
And, you know, doing the same thing, you know, consistently up to the point of teaching it for the last 10 or 12. And, you know, my mother still, I talk to my mother and she's like, how's your Tai Chi coming? You know, or how's your karate? And it's like, that, that's not what I do. Right. You don't even get it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's been 12 years of me telling you what I do and it still just hasn't sunk in. It's just off the radar for most people. It's all karate. Yeah, it is. And I, I do think that that's one of the, um, the tough things about it. And that's why I sort of admire the spirit of, of guys like you who kept at it and, and, you know, kept that spirit alive. Um, because it is considered sort of an odd activity. Yeah. Whereas, in, whereas in China, it's considered something you ought to do. Um, one of the sayings I really loved was, uh, uh, is, um, a person should be a master of both the martial and the cultural that's to have with the whole. Yeah. Uh, Wen Wu, exactly. Shuang uh, mm. And so I, I often felt that that's, you know, that w that's not only wise, but something that was, should be more taken into account here. Uh, it's one of the things I do think is odd. It's we spend so much time teaching, you know, our boys and girls how to throw a ball, and, you know, get get something in a hoop, but, you know, learning how to defend yourself is actually a practical skill um, and, and teaches confidence and all other, all the things that sports do anyway, but also the practical aspect, whereas being able to, you know, dunk a basketball, no, practical. no real value, <laughs> right. no, value uh, no value outside the game itself. So um, I, I, I really do admire um, the, people have kept with it year after year well you know i think a lot of us have done it for precisely the same reasons you got into it we just had to do it here and make our own little asias out in the park with people heckling us exactly we all you know every teenager no matter how tough that teenager is is going to have ego problems right you know you're you're more prone to get in fights with other people if you don't know if you can fight or not you know or if you're if you're not confident with yourself and, you right. know, taking a martial art for me, I mean, the more I've done martial arts, the, the the fewer fights I've gotten into because somebody can call me a whatever and I can walk away and not, you know, be all hurt inside about it because I know better, you know. Um, and, you know, just teaching that to kids, teenagers, young adults, I, I think is priceless. Plus, you know, a little self-defense if you actually get in a bad situation doesn't hurt either. Yeah, exactly. One of my yeah, one of my favorite sayings is that you you know learn martial arts um, so you can walk away from a fight instead of run. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I've always you know I've always felt that was the case. You run when you're scared. You walk away when you're when you don't feel like you need to. And so um, I do think that that's one of the best things that that teaches young people. Definitely. And you know if you compare it to some of the sports that they have in school, football, basketball. You know, the rates of injury are actually higher with some of those sports, and uh, the, they're not as good a general health practice. You know, you get real good at doing one or two things, but that kind of monofocus in athletics, I think, is, is you know, kind of rough on kids. Yeah, I do. I, I, I totally agree with that, particularly with football. I think this, this head injury thing is going to make it convincingly harder um, for parents to allow their kids to participate in that particular sport. So. Um, yeah, I think, I think the martial arts overall is a kind of, um, basic sort of thing that children should do. Um, I keep hoping, you know, you see it more and more. And I keep hoping it becomes a kind of trend. You know, you see a lot of, I know a lot of parents with young kids and they all do Taekwondo right. and, and, you know, middle school, but that they don't tend to continue on with it as they get older, they switch over to the sports that'll get them the girlfriend. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> right? Um, whereas Japan judo is like you know a national pastime. So um, I'm hoping that continue MMA may be a way for that to continue on. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think that's a <clears throat> interesting concept too. Um, you obviously have looked at the Chinese language a little bit more in detail than than some of the you know people that we've talked to. Um, and just like, you know, Wu Shu or Wu Lin or whatever, the Wu character, you know, you look at the whole stop fight, stop spear or whatever, and that, that says a lot. It doesn't say run away from aggression. It says to stop it and deal with it right then and there. Um, and that, right. that's something very important. Aside from that, I, I'm in complete agreement with you about, um, you know, fortunately for some areas in China, it's part of uh, the PE education. Kids are learning Cha Chen or something like that. Granted, it's gotten watered down over time, and now it's just do a little fancy form, and you're done uh, for your exercise. And that kind of sucks because in traditional, um, you know, martial arts training, whether it be Chinese or anything, there's a whole lot more that's being learned aside from just the guy throws a punch and you block, but more about principles and things of that nature, body motion, that will play out into your maybe college football career. You know, you're able to run better because you know how to, you know, align your structure when you're trying to take that cut really hard, you know, um, or just spatial awareness if you end up being a wait- waiter or waitress, you know, all kinds of different things. But I think it's a, there's something that with typical exercise is kind of missing in the States and, and martial arts definitely brings that to the table. Yeah. And that touches on a point I, I, I wanted to bring up as you were talking about traditional martial arts, um, because I do think that this is a, is a strong critique traditional martial arts has for say wushu or kickboxing or MMA, which is that it grounded in the Shaolin temple. It is a spiritual act as well. Mm-hmm. Um, traditional martial arts with Tai Chi, you can see it more obviously, but it's considered a form of moving meditation. And so it isn't only about um, your body, but it's also about the focus of the mind and the spirit. Um, and I do think one of the things that happens when it gets translated over to the West is it gets kind of turned into physics and you lose the kind of spiritual aspect um, that I, I think is a, one of the things I particularly found attractive about it. Um, and I do think that's one of the disappointing things of of some of the ways in which it's taught over here. Um, and some of the best things about the people who really are into traditional Chinese uh, martial arts in the States is they recognize that this is a kind of spiritual practice as well. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's over the course of my life in this parallel with my martial arts development, but I've eventually became a very skeptical person and pretty much abandoned all mysticism. But I still, I tell people, you know, when I go practice martial arts, that's my church. And, you know, just because I'm an atheist or whatever, doesn't mean I still don't feel that sense of the numinous when I'm breathing and moving outdoors and connecting, you know, with the cosmos that that's open to everybody, you know, (laughs) regardless. Yeah. So, uh, but you know, that, that can be sort of a struggle in the Western world is infusing that spirituality, whether it's spirituality, say Buddhism versus Calvinism that, you know, strongly contradicts each other, or whether it's somebody who's, you know, more of a materialist, materialist or a humanist like myself, who, you know, doesn't want to get all floating on a cloud mystical with people, but you know, I don't believe in chi as, as, you know, uh, a vitalistic life form, but I still do qigong because I like what it does for me, you know, (laughs) and I, I try to explain it to people in more materialistic terms, but you know, sometimes their eyes glaze over because they, they want a direct connection to that spiritual idea. Yeah, no, I found that too. And that's one of the interesting things. I, I, I'm sure you saw that when I was writing the book is that, you know, obviously the Shaolin temple has a strong spiritual history, 
um, there was less of it there when I was visiting because the, the emphasis <laughs> was on the martial arts. And, yeah, exactly. Yongqin, exactly. The uh, the CEO Abbott. Um, so uh, the, there were the materialism was very present, but I you know I found it interesting when I talked to audiences that there was a certain percentage of the audience who were who wanted to hear more about the spiritual side um, and less about the fighting stuff, um, and it tended to be sort of older women. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, you know the the younger guys all wanted to talk about fighting, so it it is an interesting sort of balance on how you present it to people, and I think you know that is part of the martial arts journey is there is a struggle with you know the degree to which this is uh, feels like a physical activity, and then there's these kind of moments of uh, the numinous that we we feel in our training. Yeah. So. Well, you know, it seems like we touched upon this a second ago, but I want to hear your thoughts on this. Uh, it seems like, you know, China, since the time you first went there and, you know, your return visit uh, as the epilogue to the book had already really started this process. But, you know, where China's modernizing, um, they don't have the time or the inclination to sit around and do Kung Fu anymore. They want to catch up with the West. They want to learn physics and chemistry and, you know, drive nice cars and, and get jobs and stuff. And, it seems like all it's almost uh, gotten to the point where if it's not being kept alive in the in the rural areas there, it's being kept alive by sort of you know if you want to call us dilettante westerners or whatever that uh, you know go over and try to grab as much of that as we can and bring it back. Yeah, I do think that there is that's a real uh, threat. You know, the modernization where you speed up the pace of life and um, it's not enough to continue. You know, in the rural areas where I was for a long period of time, you just subsisted. You made enough to survive. Um, and so you had lots more time. Um, and once you get into the kind of uh, the iron triangle of capitalism, where you need to keep making more and more money to keep up with everyone else, so that, you know, because of inflation, etc., um, you don't have time to train for five years or 10 years to master a form. So um, I do think that, that that was an aspect. Uh, but one of the advantages China has that is with 1.4 billion people, it uh, you know it has a lot of people it can throw at a problem. So right. Even like though, <laughs> right, so it can have a lot of people working to make money, and it's still uh, the Shaolin Village has something like 70,000 kids doing kung fu every day, which you know is, kind of blows your mind when you see it in action. Yeah. Um, and so and so even though in large parts of the country are moving away from that spirit. There's still the reservoir of love for it is still pretty tremendous. Do you think that just out of curiosity is Craig again, that um, all these 70,000 kids and whatnot, do you think they're doing it because their grandmothers uh, told them stories or, you know, they know of the massive benefits or they want to defend themselves or they're trying to look at, uh, their shot at the, the, the title belt, so to speak, their shot at fame and glory on a small bit of uh, Wushu. Uh, Being the next Jet Li or yeah. whatever, yeah. Yeah, well, definitely, uh, I think all of those come into play. One of the things I found fascinating was I would say about a third to a half of the boys who were there were sent there because their parents got frustrated with them getting into trouble all the time mm. at school. Yeah. Um, and so Shallon was kind of a version of military academy. Um, and I used to joke that Kung Fu was their version of Riddle. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, you're not so eager to kick you know, somebody else's ass when you've had to kick your own all day. Right. Yeah, exactly. You do kind of seven hours of Kung Fu training to calm your ass down. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, and so 
they would. They would come in there and they would sleep in barracks essentially, and they'd have a coach who was a lot like a drill sergeant. Um, and they would just do Kung Fu every day. And one of the results was for most of them, they would get jobs as police officers or they joined the army. Um, <clears throat> some of them went into private security. Uh, and so it was actually considered a way to uh, get a kind of stable yeah, job. Yeah, career path. It, there was a definite career path. And if you knew Kung Fu and you had trained at the Shaolin Temple, you had a kind of status um, if you wanted to join the army. Uh, so there was that. And then, of course, amongst them, there were the kids who had the big dreams that they were going to be the next Jet Li. A lot of the monks I knew, you know, they did films. Uh, one of the ones, Monk Li Pung, has made, came to the States and has made a couple independent movies. So at the very top of the pyramid, the very best of them dream of being national champions or being in uh, Olympic competition, um, being professional athletes. Uh, and then, you know, almost no one that goes into martial arts doesn't have a little part of their brain that wants to be the next person. Sure. So they, they all do, and uh, most aren't, end up not being good enough, and so they pick some other path. But, uh, you know, for a lot of the kids, it was sort of like, you know, you got, you got in a fight again today, Johnny. Well, <laughs> why don't we, we're going to send you the monks and have them sort yeah. you out. That's right. <laughs> Probably not a bad plan, especially if you don't have Ritalin available out there in the countryside. Yeah, yeah exactly. And they got bigger sticks to beat you with. That's right. <laughs> they, do, they do. And when you're being hit by someone who's a master of the stick. <laughs> <laughs> Hell of a whipping. <laughs> Exactly. All right. Well, let's let's move this on towards your 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 next book. Um, so you 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 got back and you know you you got busy with life and you know you got got the other aspects of your life sorted out. Um, and then somehow you got the crazy idea you were going to fight an MMA fight. Tell tell us how that got started. <laughs> yeah. Well, what happened was um, the way I got stuck doing this was the way I think most men get stuck doing something stupid, which is <laughs> I, was I was trying to impress a girl. So uh, uh, basically what had happened is I'd written American Shaolin uh, about a decade after I was there. I wasn't originally planning to write about it. And then uh, a friend of mine who was an editor said, this is a great story. You should write it. I ended up writing the book and it turned out to be a national bestseller and it did very well. Um, and so I wanted I talked to my editor about trying to come up with another book. And what I discovered was that I, I sort of not realizing it, that mixed martial arts had become sort of the new sport for frat boys in the country. Um, you know, guys who had no interest in martial arts, the kind of, you know, 25 year old, 28 year old frat guy who before would never have talked about Kung Fu or karate or Taekwondo. Would like to good beat him up. <laughs> exactly. Um, was suddenly talking about Chuck Liddell and Randy Couture. Right. Um, and so this, I, this absolutely fascinated me that something, I kind of felt like some, my indie, my garage indie band had started playing stadiums. <laughs> um, and so I wanted to see what, what that was like. And I pitched the idea for writing a kind of general book about uh, mixed martial arts to my editor. And he said, that's great, you know, but we expect you to get in the cage. Um, <laughs> And I was, you know, I basically hadn't trained much for 15 years. I was way overweight. Um, and so I felt like the, you know, ex-high school athlete who suddenly gets his shot to play in the NBA. Right. So that's, that's how I got started um, training again. 
um, sort of starting from scratch and learning mixed martial arts. Well, let me ask you this. Did you really feel like, because, I mean, I've been guilty of this. I think Craig has. I think most martial artists, uh, if they don't get paid to do it day in and day out, are guilty of having periods where they work really hard to develop a skill set and then life intervenes or something happens and you sort of let it wither on the vine and you don't practice as much and then you know, you get the time or the desire back and you go back into it. And for me, it's this combination of a, um, frustration at what I had worked so hard to get and have backslid from, and now have to do that same damn painful work all over again. Because once you get the skill, it's a lot easier to maintain than, you know, get. And, uh, on the other side though, I feel like it's helped me out a lot. Just, you know, if I lay off for six months or something and come back, I tend to snap back faster, you know, now six months may not be long enough, uh, (laughs) to get the same effect, but you know, how did, how did your previous training influence the training you did going forward? Did it give you any advantage or did it depress the hell out of you when you first started back? Well, you know, what was it like? Uh, yeah, yeah, I, you you captured exactly. I think that's a, a universal feeling for all martial artists who have periods where there's lulls. And and I think you touched on the point exactly. If you're not getting paid to do this every day, it is something that inevitably there will be periods where you're less intense and and more. Um, so uh, the big part for me was uh, was having to learn jujitsu, ground fighting, because I had zero experience with that. Um, and I found that sort of the most fascinating aspect of mixed martial arts because when I was, you know, into the martial arts as a young man, we all considered stand-up striking to be the be-all and end-all. Yeah. Um, and, you know, wrestling and rolling on the ground was if you had done something wrong. Um, and that was the last place on earth you would want to right. be. Um, and so, and, and, and there's some reasons for that. If you have multiple opponents, you don't want to go to the ground or if they have a knife, you don't want to get that close. But, um, I don't think any of us, uh, estimated just how likely in a one-on-one unarmed fight things could go to the ground. And until we saw the Brazilians doing it, um, realize how effective you could be, for example, off your back. Uh, so, yeah, they came in with those first UFCs and just basically, of course, you know, their competition okay. had no idea what they were getting into, uh, oh, yeah. but they, they really put an owning on them. And I, you know, that for, for a good five years there, Brazilian jiu-jitsu was the only martial art that worked, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it was basically Brazilian jiu-jitsu versus American uh, amateur wrestling. Right. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Um, and that was, I mean, that was a real eye opener, I think for everybody who came from a stand up striking style which was pretty much everybody in the martial arts is that that you needed to have that. That was a big gap in our game. Um, and so for me, starting Brazilian jiu-jitsu felt like starting my first day at Shaolin. Only I was, you know, 38, not 21. So it hurt a lot more. Um, and, and I did, I had that feeling of kind of embarrassment of that white belt feeling again, where you've got to start all over. But the difference is you remember what it was like to be a black belt at something. So it's even more humbling, um, to have to start on over again. Uh, but when I, you know, I did that for three or four months and then started to study Muay Thai, um, as my standup style. And from that, from the, my Sanda background, uh, of kickboxing, that was much easier. And that felt like sort of getting back on the bike. I was rusty. My legs weren't as flexible as they used to be, but I understood the principles. I understood, um, how it worked. I had a kind of intuitive sense of the game. Uh, and so if I had not had the Shaolin background, I definitely don't think I would have been able to pull off, um, 
you know, fighting in mixed martial arts. Yeah, yeah. It, um, you know, how did you feel about doing all that extensive uh, jujitsu training with some really good people, and uh, you know, um, a little sambo with our with our buddy Steve Kepfer? Um, yeah. You, know, you did all that stuff and then you wind up in the fight and it actually never came into play. Were, were you grateful for that? Or were you like, damn it, I spent two years learning this part and didn't get to use it. I know it's, um, uh, you know, I, because it, spoiler alert, but I figure people buy the book, whether or not I say this. So, uh, because I won, it did matter. Um, <laughs> right. uh, but, but, you know, I did, there was a little moment, like it would have been nice to, you know, see what I could have done on the ground and, and, uh, worked a little bit of that. Uh, but the truth is uh, one of the things I did realize, and i I noticed this with older martial artists is once you're really good at one of those two aspects, it's very hard to, to feel comfortable doing the other one. Um, and I do think that that, the, the younger kids who come along and study them both at the same time will just won't have this aspect. Yeah. Uh, but I, I never felt comfortable on the ground. Okay. Yeah. It's like, kind of like you know, if I you just, learn, you know, two languages when you're growing up, then, you know, you're fluent yeah. in both of them. But if you start one when you're 30, then you're never going to be completely fluent at it. No, no, you can be basically the same thing. I was proficient in, in jujitsu. Like I could, I could ask you how to get to the bathroom, uh, <laughs> but I couldn't. <laughs> it's on the floor. <laughs> nice analogy. Yeah, exactly. There's a hole, yeah. but um, I, I, you know, I didn't feel like I could have a, a discussion about higher politics with you, and 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 that's the that's the thing is I I do really admire jujitsu. It's a it's a beautiful art. It's incredibly complex. Um, it's worthy of being considered an equal as a martial art with um, some of the traditional ones, but um, it just never, it doesn't float my boat to be that close to another sweaty man. <laughs> Even after all this just, time I, we spent together, you know? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I, I hate to break you, I break your heart that way, but I, you know, I'd rather stand at a distance and send you notes at the end of my there life. There you go. So. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, that's the, that's the thing though. And I knew guys who were the exact opposite when they stood up, um, and tried to, they just, a, a lot of the wrestling guys I knew once they get hit in the face, their whole composure changed. Um, and they kind of shriveled up inside and they kind of ducked their head and, you know, dove at your leg. Right. Uh, and so there is a, there is a kind of, I do think not only what your background is, but there's a kind of, um, just a kind of psychological thing. Certain fighters are different people. Some people really comfortable being up close and personal and, and other guys are much more comfortable kind of standing. And yeah. Trading. Different temperaments. So, let me, exactly. Let me ask you this, Matt, um, just from your personal experience of going through that, you know, um, I, I went through a, a different, but semi related thing in that going through high school, I was on the wrestling team and, um, you know, I, I, got on there because I took a class about intro to wrestling and then realized I really enjoyed it and, and went on and became on the team. But at the same time, I was studying Northern Shaolin. We were having fight nights and doing traditional training and all this kind of stuff. But to me, the twain shall never meet, um, at least at mm. that time. The two of them were nothing uh, tied in together. Now, granted, I could use like, you know, uh, my my kung fu training to not get taken down quite as easy just from rooting and breathing and stuff. But I was never that great in the ground grappling game. 
Now, right. obviously, on the internet and in the movies and everywhere, you know, the rule is if you want to be a good fighter, learn all ranges of combat and all motions and stuff. What do you find, and you just admitted that you found it hard also being from your back, what do you think is that glue or that lubrication that somebody who maybe is only a ground game guy um, and has having a hard time to move to the stand-up fight or vice versa, what do you think is the missing ingredient there to make it easier for people? Yeah, I do. I, it, it, that's a tough question because it, it is weird, and, and it's interesting how certain styles – um, like Northern Shaolin, I can see in very, many ways how that doesn't seem to just mentally mesh with, um, say, American amateur wrestling. Uh, I think the the key is that comfortableness with the transition from standing to bottom and bottom up. Because um, there, it's. I think the guys who are best at that are. Uh, moving between stand-up fighting and ground fighting, mm. uh, the takedown, the takedowns and the coming up, uh, and I think it's really takedowns that are the key. Being able to think while you're striking uh, about turning a punch into a throw, yeah. uh, turning a catch into a throw—that's um, one of the things uh, Fedor Emelianenko and the whole sambo tradition is great yeah. at. Uh, a lot of their punches are, are looping punches, and the idea is if they miss, they can still grab and throw with it. Yeah, I think – uh, oh, know, sorry to cut you off. Steven – I know I was just saying, uh, you mentioned Steven. He, that's one of the things he sort of pointed out to me and taught me, um, that idea that you know a punch isn't just a punch. A punch can be a throw. Um, and when you're moving, you can – when you think of it as a, a continuum as opposed to two distinct things, stand-up versus uh, grappling yeah. – that that's that's the mental glue that people need and that's the one that like i could mentally appreciate but i never in my spirit i never felt it was always like oh fuck we're going to okay. <laughs> well maybe these younger guys you know i think sambo is gaining some prominence and some notoriety and maybe things like uh you know shui and other arts that sort of live in that middle area uh will yeah. start you know being pulled out by some of these fighters just looking for an extra edge yeah yeah yeah, and that's one of the things I do really enjoy. I, I think mixed martial arts has its flaws, and as a combat sport, it's it's by definition limited. It doesn't. It can never reach the whole spectrum of uh, what traditional martial arts offers. Uh, but uh, I do think that uh, one of the great things about it is that competition creates a kind of experimental environment Definitely. where where people, you know, everyone gets the basics and then somebody's looking for that edge. And then you start seeing people doing these like crazy, you know, somersault, you know, axe kicks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Putting one foot on the cage you know, the and guy. jumping off and kicking you in the head. <laughs> yeah, the, the, yeah the, that kick. The one where he jumped on the cage and Andy Pettis, was it? When yeah, the guy that's, in the head. that's beauty. <laughs> Straight yeah. out of the food I mean, movies. Yeah, that's straight out of a movie. That's Mortal Kombat. <laughs> you know, that's that's the kind of stuff you love to see. Um, and the amazing thing is, we, until this sport had happened, we never believed that could actually happen in a fight. You were always told that's a that's a silly. That's movie. just for demonstration. Stunt. It's yeah. Yeah, it's just for demonstration. It's a silly stunt. It can never be done. It's it's all about the jab and the front snap kick and the roundhouse. Right. And then someone's like. Hey, uh, but we could do a flying kick off of the cage, and and so they did it. So yeah, that is badass. Um, so I got to ask you this, and I, I expect a very empirical and uh, you know rational answer to this question. But which was more okay. surreal for you, living in rural China and training for two years, or living in Las Vegas and training for six months? 
<laughs> yes, exactly. Um, they're both insane. Um, you know, Las Vegas is just a little easier because everybody speaks English. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, and the truth is like, uh, I didn't spend much time on the strip. Las Vegas is fascinating because there really is that tourist strip, which is the only thing I'd ever visited before. And then the town itself, which feels kind of like Phoenix. Right. <laughs> um, so they're, they live in kind of uncomfortable conjunction with each other. Uh, but yeah, there, there's no, nothing that can ever compare to uh, being the only white person in the Shallon village in the middle nineties. That, <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was absolutely mind blowing. At, at the end of the day, after I'd like had to speak my broken Chinese hour after hour after hour, I would actually go to my own room and start talking to myself in English. <laughs> Just to hear some English. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and at, at the point where I started answering myself was when I started to get worried. Right. So, um, there, you know, that that was definitely um, just hard on so many different levels beyond just the training itself. Whereas training MMA was mostly difficult just simply for that fact of the, the fear of getting back in the cage and, and fighting and, and being older and the, the nagging injuries that we all have. And, you know, and, and having to, to give up your orange dopes and, you know, all that stuff you'd grown so accustomed to. <laughs> that is, that is true. The, uh, the cutting weight I'd never had to do cause I was always so skinny. I fought whatever weight I was. Um, and, and that is the kind of, that is interesting. And that definitely comes from American wrestling. This um, this incredible focus on cutting weight, where people are—it's like a you know a race to the bottom, where guys are cutting twenty, thirty. I don't pounds. see how they do it. It <laughs> seems like you'd be ready to pass out when you walked into the ring. I guess that one day of recovery after the weigh-in is enough to get your juice back. But yeah, it, it, that I have to say, I never experienced what it was like before because I never cut that kind of weight, even though I had done a little wrestling in middle school and uh, just a touch in high school, but. I, what I ended up cutting, like I think 25 or 30 pounds. Um, but the last day I felt like a zombie. It was like the baton death march, like no water, no energy, no emotional thing. Um, and then you're expected to weigh in and pose for photos. <laughs> I don't know how those, uh, the professional athletes managed to even answer questions. Um, but you maybe some get, of those guys are back. a lot smarter than they sound, you know, because they've been <laughs> that starved. Is, that, <laughs> That is absolutely true. Like you are, you lose 30 IQ points when you're in that state. Um, but you, but by the next day, if, if the cut wasn't too tragic and some of those guys never recover, uh, but if you do a reasonable cut, then by the next day, actually, you're pretty much fine. Uh, but I do think that's one of the things that limits their uh, longevity in the sport. Bingo, bingo. Is the, the, the weight jumping up and down and up and down like that, um, has a toll on the body. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's actually some pretty good research now that says yo-yoing weight like that is worse than being fat for your overall yeah. health outcomes, you know. So, um, well, you know, you, you have, you, despite the fact that those announcers at the fight you were in, and by the way, people, you know, read the book first, I recommend this, but then go watch the fight on YouTube. It's out there. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh, you know, th- those announcers, I think they were ready for you to carve a new dynasty. Um, <laughs> they were in love with you, but you did decide to give it up after that fight. I think, you know, you'd done what you wanted to do and we're moving on. But, you know, you cut all that weight, you got it back in shape. So, and it sounds like you've been keeping up with it. What have you been, you know, doing since all that ended to, to keep yourself in shape and, and not backslide too bad? 
Yeah, I, well, I backslid a little, but because uh, you know, I definitely don't have time to train four or five hours a day like I was. But um, I do have. There's one of the great things about this explosion is there are MMA gyms everywhere. So um, I live in New Haven, and there's one about ten minutes away, and so I go in and and do a little light sparring. Right. That was my that was my one rule is that I I. I don't have any more brain cells to give up. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, so I don't do any heavy sparring anymore, but I do some light sparring and working the bag and, and on, you know, the occasion I'll try to do some jujitsu just to make sure I don't lose all the things I learned. Um, so I get to do that every, you know, once, twice a week, um, to kind of keep myself in shape and keep in the game. Uh, but it, I have to say the, for about three months after I, the fight was over, I was like, it was the best thing in the world not to have to train. <laughs> you were on the couch with a big orange gulp and, uh, yeah, the big orange gulp. Exactly. <laughs> and as many uh, cheese and crackers as I wanted. Um, they, uh, you know, that's, that is, because, I think it's interesting. And uh, this is just a distinction between the way the Chinese and the Americans train them, uh, the Western training is much for peak training yeah. where you, you, you build up and you do that eight week camp and you build up to a peak and then you fight and then you let it slough off and you have a lull, a lull and then you go back at it. Um, and the Chinese training was basically like, this is what, you, this is what you're going to do every day, six days for a the week rest of your for life. the next, ten, for the next 10 years at least. Right. Um, and, and even when you got old, you uh, would go out to the park every morning and you would line up with the other oldsters and do Tai Chi or something, just, you know, routine every day. Exactly. And, and I do think there's a real value to that kind of routinization. Um, uh, and, and I think each side has something to learn from the other. One of the things I did notice with uh, American mixed martial artists is that while they're very good at this kind of late eight-week training camp crash, um, but they, they're periods where they slough off are too long <laughs> and um, they do have a habit of letting themselves go in between. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I do think that kind of affects them of that kind of their fluctuation is uh, too up and too down. Uh, on the other hand, um, you know, the Chinese problem is when you're injured, they don't even stop then. Um, that, that that's considered a weakness to, to not train if you've got nagging injuries. Um, and so a lot of martial arts careers in Asia are just lost because nagging injuries turn into serious injuries and then never heal. For a country uh, who came I, up with the yin-yang philosophy, that seems to be completely opposite of what they came up with, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, that uh, yin-yang kind of idea would be that kind of you go with the flow and you feel where your body's at and the spirit's at. Um, but they they have a real kind of industrialization view of, of training so that, you know, I would watch and it was like, let's take 50,000 kids and just put them through the meat grinder and we'll end up with 20 who are brilliant. <laughs> and we don't, and we don't really care what happens to the other 48, 49,000. So, um, I think that, uh, the American training sometimes is a little too precious. Um, but it definitely, uh, it you know, on average is better for the longevity of a, of a fighter's yeah, career. Yeah, I mean, you, you see people just like, I don't think, at least not from China or definitely not from America, there, there's ever going to be another generation of martial arts movie actors like uh, Jackie Chan and Yun Bu and Sammo Hung, those guys that did that early, you know, that Beijing opera training while it was still old school, and their parents would basically sign a, you know, if you kill them, you know, hold you harmless agreement when they handed them over. 
And, you know, yeah. it's child abuse, and I, I really think it is. But on the other hand, you don't get a guy who can do stunts up into his 60s, you know, and do that kind of stuff without punishing him like that. So, That's you know, where, where's yeah. the ethics in there, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I don't know. Have you ever seen uh, Farewell to My Concubine? Yeah, Farewell to My Concubine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's one of my favorite movies because they, their training for the Peking Opera is very, very similar to what the Shaolin guys mm-hmm. did. Um, and, uh, and that's, and there's a transition, right? Because peaking opera is a kind of formalized martial art in many of the acting. And so, yeah, exactly what, uh, what Jet Li, I, I interviewed him for Playboy once, um, when he first got over here. Oh, cool. And that is, and which was, yeah, it was a lot of fun. I got, I actually got to do it in Chinese. He wouldn't stop talking about Buddha. <laughs> Kung Fu hot chicks and one weird dude over here talking Buddha, you know? Yeah. yeah. So I, I, um, but I, you know, he still is angry about the way he was, he was like essentially tortured as a child, um, and the training they did, like you could just still see his kind of neck pulsate at the, the way they, you know, whipped him and beat him with sticks, you know, when he'd be injured and they keep forcing him out there to keep going. So yeah, it's like a cultural uh, choice, you know, is it worth, uh, you know, burning 5,000 yeah. saisons to have one rim rat, you know, or do we want to get as many yeah. of the decent ones out there as possible? Yeah, it is. It is really a cultural choice. And, uh, and we tend to favor the individual over the collective exactly. good and they, and they favor the collective good and it is a spectrum. Um, but, uh, but you do get, you know, you, we, you won't have another guy like Jet Li. Um, who can, but essentially just, there is no form of, uh, traditional martial arts. He can't master in about six right. weeks, um, or somebody like Jackie Chan who can still jump through windows <laughs> and off of, off of buildings when he's 60 years yeah. old. Yeah. Or even Samuel Hung, God, you know, the guy's 50, hundred pounds overweight and up into his 50 or he's still doing movies where he has big fight scenes in him and gets the crap beat out of him. I just, yeah. I don't yeah. see how he does it. Yeah, no, I know. I mean, I they annoy me because I at 38 I was getting banged up, going like I'm old. <laughs> oh yeah, not enough, uh, not enough bitter swallowed there for any of us, I guess. Charcoal, exactly. <laughs> well, um, you know, we're running up on time here, but I, I definitely want to find out. You know, uh, you've had a lot of success with these two books, and they're really popular. What? I had a bunch of jokey suggestions for you, but you know, uh, base jump from the space station or so, but yeah, I'm not going to run through all that crap. I'll just, just tell us what you're going to do next. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My jokey suggestion was I would do a Mexican wrestling. Oh, oh. Luchador. Yeah. And Lucha yeah. Libre. There you go. Um, um, but no, actually, uh, and it's it's good that it's an excellent transition. We were talking about Sam Mahong and Jackie Chan because my next book is is going to be a biography of Bruce Lee. Oh, sweet, nice. Now I I got to ask you about this. Where are you going with that? Because that certainly is a field that people have been plowing, you know, aggressively for the last thirty years. You mean it's what, been done before? What's your angle? Yeah, the, well, uh, part of it, and you know. It's interesting because you kind of have a general audience who has a vague sense of Bruce Lee, and then, of course, those of us who are passionate about it who know a lot of the details. So a lot of the – it's going to be a general biography. Um, The last major one was done by Bruce Thomas about 20 years Mm -hmm. ago. Um, and, and so a lot of what I'm going to be doing is like pulling together everything that's been written about Bruce and putting into one context. Um, and the, the thing that I was 
an editor suggested to me, and I thought, well, certainly there has to be, you know, the kind of Steve Jobs biography, you know, a good 500-page one, but there really isn't. So that's going to be the major goal is to focus on that. Um, And then hopefully I'll bring some of uh, what I have as a specialty. And uh, I talked to Dan and Asanto, and I'm going to train a little bit of some JKD. There you go. It, um, to try to talk about what that's like. Um, so a little bit of what the personal stuff, but I really wanted to do this book um, and focus on someone else. Um, more more a biography did, than a memoir in this case. Yeah, exactly. A straight up biography. It's not about me. It's uh, not who influenced and I you. Yeah. And I wanted to do one where I didn't get punched in the head. <laughs> so, um, so, but it continues. I feel like it's kind of the, the ending of the trilogy of the martial arts books. Um, and starting with the guy who got me started in martial arts seemed like an appropriate way to do it. Yeah. So, but you know, it's definitely something I'd love to, you know, maybe offline talk with you about, cause I, I still am in the research phase and definitely you don't want to repeat things that other people have done. Um, uh, but a lot of it is, I, I do feel like the, uh, the books of people have written about Bruce Lee. It's been a little threadbare. And I'm hoping to kind of fill out his life story in a way for a general audience to to remind them of why he was such an impressive person. That sounds very interesting. Yeah. Let me ask you this. You I did catch on to this. You you did happen to specifically say put a lid on the martial arts books. Um didn't say writing in general. So evidently you have something outside of and uh, come on, spill the beans a little bit. Oh, have I have I written anything? Yeah, well, I, I did. Um, uh, my first started, I actually did uh, a parody of the New York Times. that was And didn't uh, get fired, kind of a, evidently. No, I didn't, Good no. Uh, that was before I worked uh, for them. Uh, got hired, and then. then I did. <laughs> yeah, exactly, it helped. Uh, and I, I also did a kind of political satire book. So one of, the, one of my big interests was humor writing. Um, and so it's a kind of interesting combination where I, I'm writing about martial arts, but doing it in a humorous style, um, which I think is distinct from a lot of the other martial arts books I read by other authors where they're, they're ten, there's a tendency towards machismo, um, uh, a little bit of a chest puffing um, that you see with guys like uh, Sam Sheridan and others. Yeah, or you know, it's or, or it's you know, kind of, there's a lack of irony, maybe right, sometimes. Right. So, Taking themselves um, a little bit too seriously. Yeah, they do occasionally. Rex um, there's a there's there's a tendency in the in the field to be a little too um, uh, I don't know, worshipful or self regarding. Well, that's part of the reason um, we started my, this podcast because we wanted to get good martial artists and you know people connected with martial arts on to talk without trying to you know put their face out there in a big old macho way, but just talk like you'd talk at the bar with your friends after you train. Yeah, exactly. Which is why this has been so fun to do. But that's um, because the martial arts really is it's uh, it's a way of life, but it is. You know, for most of it, it's something you go and you do and then yeah. you come home. It, yeah, you know, if your martial arts not. doesn't occasionally humble you, too, then I don't think you're doing it right, you know? <laughs> <laughs> that is the truth. Exactly. Um, that is the absolute truth. So, at any rate, um, those those were the kind of things I did before. I do some travel writing. Um, now I do some political writing here and there. Uh, and, and then blog about MMA and those things. So, uh, but... 
but the main books that I've done have definitely been focused on martial arts. And it, it's interesting. I didn't, when I started off, I didn't necessarily think, well, first I didn't think there, you could make a career out of it. Uh-huh. Um, I didn't think there was a big enough audience. So that, that's been one of the great surprises uh, that I get to, you know, get paid to, to write about something I love. Yeah. No, that's awesome. And uh, we're really looking forward to that stuff. And, you know, if you, uh, if you ever do feel like life is getting dry and pointless again, and you got to do something crazy, I think I've got the idea for you. You need to, oh, tell you me. need to be in Jackass five. <laughs> Jump in with Johnny Perfect. Knoxville and those boys and get your hands dirty one more time. There's no martial arts, but you can, you know, you can let an ostrich kick you or something. <laughs> exactly. Well, uh, why don't you, before we sign off here, we've been on for over an hour now, so I don't want to waste your whole evening, but uh, before you sign off, please uh, tell everybody out there in Hialeland where they can find your books, where your web presence is, you know, wh- where they should be looking for your work. Yeah, if, uh, my website is uh, mattpolly.com. That's M-A-T-T-P-O-L-L-Y.com. Um, the books are available you can get them at Barnes and Noble, Amazon, most bookstores have them if you, um, and you can get them online as well. So, uh, my Twitter feed is Matthew E. Polly, um, or you can ding me on Facebook at Matthew Polly. So those are, those are great places. I often write for fightlinker.com for MMA okay. stuff. If people, cool. are yeah. if people are interested in following that. Um, but you know, uh, you just, Type me into Google. It's pretty easy to find uh, where I'm You're at. A personality, brother. It happens. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It, it's a slow process. Yeah. Well, right on. Well, uh, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us tonight. We've had a great time with it, and uh, really love the books. Uh, and again, you know, I'm not just blowing smoke up your butt. I, I crammed them both down uh, in two weeks because I was just having a great time reading them. I I don't know why I didn't do it earlier. You know, I saw the cover for American Shaolin a few years ago in the bookstore, and I'm like, oh, it's a monk with a Burger King bag. Oh, uh, you know, and my, my little oh, traditionalist stick up my butt made me turn my back on it. And yeah. I, you know, I should have looked a little closer, I think. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, we. Uh, that, that's fair, though. That, that was a concern. I was like, there's going to be a couple people turned off by this, this cover when, when we proposed it. Um, but yeah, once you get past that, I think it's fairly, fairly dedicated and uh, respectful of the art. Um, but definitely, uh, when I get done with Bruce Lee, I'd love to come back and chat with you all. About we it. would love to have you. Definitely. Perfect. All right. Well, thanks for coming on and hiya. Hiya, Matthew. Hiya. from the champagne lounge it was kind of sad out there those last two 
going melting pumpkins. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't know where you were going with that. I miss Halloween already. Yeah, I can tell, though. I think you have no room to worry, Dave. When I look at you, I see a melting pumpkin face. So. <laughs> well, thanks a lot. <laughs> hey, thank you very much. I've been working on that, my melting pumpkin face. It works. That was a shitload of fun talking to Matthew Polly. Uh, Hell yeah, it was. Yeah, I really enjoyed that, so... Um, I didn't get through that book like you did in a week. That American Shaolin took me a month. I haven't even read Tapped Out, but I want to. But he's another. It was just like reading his personal life as I went through there and dreaming I was him with him, you know. And so he's kind of a little hero of mine, too. You know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Just having the nerve to get out there and do that at that point in time. Uh, both of those, you know. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. The guy may be self-depreciating as a martial artist, but uh, he's got he's got the Iron Egg Kung Fu for sure. Balls no of joke. steel. <laughs> yeah, his boss said, hey, not only do we need you to write about it, we need you to do it. Wow. Yeah. No thanks, boss. <laughs> All right, so uh, what have you got for the DDDDs today? News, news, news. It's in the news. It's in the news, I'm telling you. Well, if you remember back on the uh, interview just now, uh, you mentioned about Song Lei, a little Sanda, a little fighting, that kind of action with a Chinese flair. Well, we're going to throw a little spin to that in the news. You know, Dave, there's something else that I like to do aside from Kung Fu and Aside from drink beer, oddly enough. Really? Yeah, that's throw tiles, also known as mahjong. Oh, yeah. Right? For those of you all don't know uh, who are listening, I'm not referring to the solitaire game where you match tiles and all that good stuff on the computer. You're talking the real deal here, baby. Real deal. Four yeah. people and a bunch of tiles and a bunch of Build cool a wall games. and that's tear it right. down. <laughs> <laughs> you always tear my wall now. You know, I dabbled in it. I, I've had a lot of fun playing Mahjong with you guys. I mm -hmm. haven't really been able to keep up my practice with it, but occasionally I'll get over there and have time for one game, and I love that because I sit down at the Stop. table and I win every damn that's time. That's right. I I don't even remember how to play, really, and I went. It's because this game. guy, that we have this beginner's <laughs> luck thing in our group, and I this guy renews it. I often enough. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like a damn library I'll, I'll, card. I'll sit down, I'll win one, I'll get up from the table and walk away. <laughs> yeah, you do. Oh, you bastard. So where are you going with the Mahjong there, buddy? Well, interestingly enough, the uh, World Series of Mahjong, believe it or not, there is one, is held in Macau, China. One of those weird little spots on the edge of China that's not really owned by China or hasn't been for, you know, for a while in uh, right. Macau, you know, Portuguese and all that. Anyway, that's where the World Series is held. And oddly enough, this ties in very nicely because the UFC, my friends, yes, the UFC Ultimate Fighting Championship is making a brand entrance, brand spanking new entrance into China mainland starting at the end of this next week, November 10th, starting yeah. where? In Macau. Yeah. That's right. I saw an advertisement for this on the internet, actually. And Did you buy one? Uh, no. Oh, I need me an internet. I was just checking. <laughs> But Rich Franklin is going to be fighting none other than, here's a tie-in, Tsung Lee, or however you pronounce the fellow's name, at the Kotai or Tsotai Arena at the Venetian Macau Resort Hotel on November 10th, which will be just uh, you know next week. Hopefully you guys will be hearing this enough time to schedule your DVD, DVD, DVD recording boxes and all that good stuff. As you know, Tsung Lee has a huge fan base around the world, uh, has a recently kind of upsurge in his fan base in Asia because of his uh, jump into the Asian movies, specifically Chinese, you know, or Hong Kong Kung Fu movies. Uh, one yeah, we talked about uh, 
that film, the After Dark Films, was it? That That's was, right. Uh, yeah, yeah. He was doing like five, four or five movies there. I've seen one. It's well, pretty the, they were, uh, yeah, I don't know if he was in most of them, but he was in one of the movies, the four or five martial arts movies that that company was promoting. Oh, that's right. They did the horror thing for several years. Uh, and After Dark, right? Yeah, yeah. And so they're throwing, and I still haven't been able to track these down, but folks, as soon as you do, I think the media mop up's going to pick up here over the Christmas holidays. Oh, I've got a good feeling it will. Yeah, yeah Tsung Lei just um, actually recently finished up with, uh, you know, his, his movie with Bodyguards and Assassins with, uh, who was that? Uh, no, he wasn't in that. I'm just getting all my uh, news stuff mixed Garbled up. up. <laughs> well, actually, I think it, actually I think he was um, in Bodyguards and Assassins, but I can't remember what character he played. But he's also supposed to be in the yet to be released uh, movie by Wong Kar Wai, one of your oh, yeah. favorite friends, uh, called Grand Masters. So uh, that's something to kind of be on the uh, lookout for a, you know, media mop-up thing. But anyway, back to the story. Rich Franklin, who Tsung Lee is fighting, is actually a former high school teacher um, and has faced some of the top fighters in the UFC over the course of his 13-year career. Notching wins against Chuck Liddell, uh, uh, Wanderlei Silva, Matt Hamill, and Yushi Nakami. Um, another gig going to happen on the on the 10th there at the same event is going to be South Korean MMA pioneer stun gun Kim Dong-hyun in a welterweight bout against Brazil's Paulo Thiago and also a light heavyweight battle pitting unbeaten Bulgarian Stanislav Nedkov against Brazilian knockout artist Thiago Silva mm. and then of course because it's happened in China you're going to have to get your one famous Chinese uh, MMA fighter Zhang Tiechuan hmm. versus John Tuck. Is he the monk battle. guy? The the bald guy that Yeah, he's yeah, bald, yeah. but I don't know how much monkeys he is really. But he plays it up, right? Yeah, yeah big yeah. time. Okay, I'm just, I've seen his this. His nickname's guy the Wolf. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh he's already won in the octagon against Jason Reinhardt. Uh received more than a hundred million online hits in China and all that good stuff. Um, but you know, there's a reason for all this. Uh, once the UFC reached the Asian market, basically in 2010, they forged, you know, partnerships, uh, for commercial deals with, uh, Guangdong TV and SMG, which is Shanghai media group to broadcast, uh, it's live events and, and highlights and all that good stuff that covers, you know, close to 5 million vi- viewers across the country. So that's a good move. Um, I, I'm interested to see how this all plays out and see what reactions we get with traditionalists versus sport of combat and all this. Because, I mean, you want to talk traditional, that's the motherland for traditional. But at the same time, they love this new stuff. Yeah. What do you think? And, I, you know, I, I think uh, much as it might have been intimated in our interview that uh, you're going to see the lines blur even further than they already have between the traditional and the sportive as people see how different aspects of traditional arts can play into their, you know, sport careers and give them an edge. And also, uh, you know, it's driving some of the traditionalists to want to get into that laboratory and, you know, test their stuff in the crucible of the ring again, as opposed to just assuming it all works, you know? So I think the back and forth is going to steer them both a little closer together over time. I think that's a great point. And I think, uh, you know, we haven't touched on this, but personally, even though I'm a traditionalist, I view that sport of combat can easily help out and influence your ty- uh, traditionalist game, you know. Uh, oh, yeah. Because that's a place where people are, are, are taking your principles, maybe not, you know, die or, or live, 
principle, but taking your principles about, uh, you know, punch first, you know, when you see the guy move, and you know, does that really work? Or sink low when, when somebody's coming to, to shoot, you know, all these different things. These guys are trying all this stuff out, you know, on a weekly, if not monthly basis. Um, and, and they're learning some stuff. Cool. Yes, indeed. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's, let's move along here. We got a, a court hearing that's being held in Tehran, which, as you know, is the uh, capital city in Iran. Um, Iran. <laughs> no, Iran. Oh, I stayed. I know, and that's why I was safe. Okay, you've heard of Reuters or Reuters. Yeah, the they've news a- service. Yes. They've appeared in court, okay, in this hearing in, Ty- in Tehran over a complaint filed by a group of female Iranian martial artists. You may remember a few months back I, I-, I brought I out do. this yeah. very news story against a London-based news agency over defamation of character because uh, a couple of stories that came out said they were training in ninjutsu and they kind of described them as assassins. Reuters showed a number of Iranian <laughs> girls training in martial arts in a city near Tehran, claiming Iran was training more than 3,000 female ninjas to kill any possible foreign invaders and gave it a whole, you know, uh, terrorist slant to it. And they were just some chicks doing some martial arts. Right. Lovely. Yeah. That's so bad it even made Angus howl. Oh, and it should. It should make you howl. Well, just to show that we're not the only country in the world that has some screwed up martial artists, up in Ottawa, Canada, on checking her 13-year-old daughter's cell phone, a mother in Canada found sexual messages between her daughter and Udiyan Vignesawaran a 29-year-old volunteer jiu-jitsu instructor. Upon investigation, it was found that he had given her rides and talked to her about life and whatnot. He's her martial arts instructor. The girl became obsessed with the teacher, fell in love with her, madly in love, and hoped to have a serious relationship one day that she told uh, news reporters and whatnot. When they pressed, she said they made out in his SUV, and it was all cool with her. How old, you know, how old was she again? 13. Oh. Yeah, he's 29. Yeah, you need to know better. The guy pleads guilty to kissing her and putting a hand up her shirt while she rubbed his crotch on top of his clothes sometime between April and May of 2010. <laughs> he has since received one-year probation since he's not technically a pedophile and he's low-risk, though he must also write the girl a letter of apology. So... You can see the reason I point out certain specifics. Not too proud about the way things went down here, and I'm seeing this as a kind of frequent thing. No, the bottom line is if you're 29 years old and you're dealing with a 13-year-old, that's just predatory. Yeah, no, no, it's just like, what's your problem? Get out and get a real woman, would you? Yeah, I mean, you know, some Star Trek struck 13-year-old. Yeah, she might not mind the attention. It's up to you, grown-up. Yeah, exactly. Be a man, not a not a high school wannabe, you know? And, and you're teaching something. Not only are you teaching something. Right, and abusing that relationship. Exactly. Yep, yep. And you're teaching martial arts, which we're supposed to have the better edge on some of this stuff. Come yeah, on, brother. character. Well, keeping up with the uh, geographic theme, 
Pirates of the Desert is a new movie that's being produced and directed by the founder of Wushu in Iran, Ali Reza Sorabzadeh. You know, I'm not too <laughs> nicely good at done. That. Nicely done. <laughs> However, and you'll you'll catch the the callback here in full 3D. The filming is being carried out in the city of Aran, A-R-A-N, okay. Vabidgol, in Ishfahan province. Wait, let me see that. <laughs> yeah. Do, do, do. Let me see. Okay, Second I got it, sentence. I got it, I got it, got it. Um, carried out in the city of Aran, Vabidgol, uh, in Ishfahan province. You did it right. I did it. You did it right, yeah. So anyway, we got this new action action movie that's being shot in Iran in full 3D, and there's a lot of martial arts that they're they're talking about they haven't specialized or or specified which style of martial arts that's going to happen but i'm kind of interested in seeing this because this is the second time we've heard about movies being shot in 3d uh, instead of after the fact Mm -hmm. um and them having some martial arts content so that's cool but at the same time i don't want a bunch of stinky feet flying at me through the cinemas folks let's not be the sidekick into your nose no (laughs) all right it's better than blood dripping into your lap from a, you know, from a pipe shoved up somebody's neck. Parasite? Oh, yeah, that's, well, that's, that's room to interpretation right there. I don't well, know okay. if that is better, really. You'd prefer the, stink, uh, the pipe in the neck as opposed to the stinky feet? <laughs> <laughs> Tells me a little something about you. Hey, you know I love it. Yep. 1893 to 2012, that is this year, Lu Zijian. Okay, an old Chinese dude passed away uh, just this past month. Now, this is, you know, he's a kung fu cat, obviously, with the Chinese name, right? Okay, and uh, he's pretty famous in China, okay? He's awarded the Ninth Duan, which is the highest grade in wushu and martial arts mm-hmm. thing. Um, and he was uh, just given that back in 2002. Um, he's a well-known martial artist, also of the Dragon Gate Longman. Mm-hmm. Uh, lineage of Taoism. The guy did a bunch, you know, internal arts, obviously, bogwashing, tai chi, uh, and studied a bunch of external stuff as well. The my main point in bringing this up is something that that has occurred to me because we've had a couple of death notices recently, and we talk about uh, you know, oh, it sucks he died. He's a, he's a legend, and we talk about the celebration of life. How this plays into that, honestly, I never studied with this guy, I never knew him, I knew of him and stuff like that, is the fact that he is the, or was, uh, the Taoist immortal for all Chinese around, you know, being the fact. Because his age has been brought to question about a gazillion different times. Some people today will say he's in his 80s, some people say, no, when we interviewed him, he was 112 already. Uh, and, And this is no joke. So you need to look this cat up. It's really kind of funny. Uh, some people say he's a hundred and you know twenty something. Some people say a hundred and eight. Oh, weird. And some people <laughs> say he's only eighty something. Either way, evidently he was pretty good at his foo. Definitely with his internal styles. Um, and it sucks that he's going. Um, yeah. And hopefully he wasn't pushing this mythos. Hopefully it was just. Well, you know, I think a lot of that comes from, you know, China's different from America. And it, it's a culture that's not only collectivist versus our individuality, but it really respects older people. So it's an honorific for someone to exaggerate their age. Definitely. I would completely agree with you there. 
Um, but do you think it was them exaggerating their own age, or do you think it was uh, you know their fanboys exaggerating it, or the news guys? I have no way of knowing. I like to think that somebody said, uh, you know, oh, Master, how old are you? And he's like, I don't know. They didn't keep track of birthdays back then, which mm-hmm. is true with a lot of people. And, uh, you know, he tells a few stories and they say he has to be at least a hundred years old, you know, yeah, and, exactly. and it just builds like that. I can understand. But that. you know, if he needed to promote himself a little by being 120 years old, whatever. Yeah. Um, I'm fucking 73. Beat me, bitch. Yeah. You look pretty good for that age. Thank you. Pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on the road to nowhere. We know it. Oh yeah. Well, folks, that's the news, and that brings us around to the end of another exciting Hi-Ya podcast. Craig, why don't you tell the folks where they can reach us if they have uh, complaints, comments, or anything else? Well, that would be your personal home address, Dave. Yeah, come on by. <laughs> Just don't be creeping around the yard after dark. That's right. Check out Hi-Ya podcast. Use it as a search uh, term in your Googles. Hi-Ya martial arts podcast also works. Hi-Yapodcast.com is the name of our uh, URL, our website. Do a high uh, martial arts or a high uh, podcast on Facebook. You'll find us. Uh, you can also find us at mailbag at highoutpodcast.com. Uh, Send your questions, complaints, rants, reviews, and love notes. Yeah. And we got to say, the Facebook page has been doing great lately. You know, we're getting new people almost every day. And uh, today we, we hit a 108. <clears throat> Yeah, we oh, we hit the magic 108. Yes, we did. And uh, also, uh, we've gotten enough uh, you know, ratings and reviews on iTunes. We popped over to a second page, so please don't stop now. Keep them coming. You know, our numbers are up, and uh, share the podcast with anyone you think might be interested because uh, you know we're feeling a little surge behind us, and exactly. we want to keep this going. Plus, we keep getting these great guests on. We want as many people to hear them as possible. There is a little bit of selfish reasoning. We also want these numbers to keep going up, but we'll explain that later as well. Yeah, just for our huge egos, mostly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can scratch his back, but he sucks when he scratches mine. Mm, that's not what you said the other day. Well, you know. Mm-hmm. You were purring like a kitten. And on that note, my folks. <laughs> we'll leave you with a hearty... See ya! Something is squeezing my